I'm Ava Hartling. Welcome to The Brand is Female, where every week I speak with women change makers who are redefining the rules of female leadership. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs. TD helps women in business achieve success and growth through its program of educational workshops, financing, and mentorship. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help you. Today, my guest is Hajar Nakwa, a mental health researcher and advocate for Muslim women in STEM. She uses her online platforms to share the latest research about mental health and neuroscience with her North American and Middle Eastern followers on Instagram in both English and Arabic. She's currently a PhD candidate studying neuroscience, using brain imaging technology to get a better understanding of mental health and psychiatric conditions in patients. Through her research, Hajir hopes to uncover biological markers specific to different mental illnesses to help with treatment and diagnosis. This episode, along with several more this month, is presented in partnership with CAMH and their new Women Mind initiative. Women Mind is a community of philanthropists and thought leaders tackling the unique gender issues that underrepresented people face when it comes to their mental health. Women's mental health is a challenge on two main fronts. First, we experience depression, anxiety, and trauma to a greater extent than men. And next, women in science face biases as they work to advance their careers. An initiative like Women Mind at CAMH is critical to address the gender inequities we face when it comes to mental health. Find out more about CAMH and Women Mind by visiting the link in episode notes or go to camh.ca. Hajar, it's a, a pleasure speaking with you today on The Brand is Female. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I love this podcast. I'm so glad. And I actually want to start by asking you uh, to go back in time a little bit. And we're obviously going to uh, speak about your involvement and your uh, your work in uh, in mental health. But what did you dream of becoming or doing later in life when you were a, a young girl? And did you already know it would have something to do with science or even mental health at that point? I, this is a really interesting question. I was exposed to science at a really young age. So my dad is a scientist, he's a chemist. And uh, I used to do really fun science experiments with my dad when I was young. I would go to science fairs. He had microscopes all around the house. So I think that exposure really um, provided me this um, uh, loving relationship with science from a really young age. And science was always part of my upbringing. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, growing up and being so exposed to science sort of uh, allowed me to have a really positive relationship in my childhood that flourished um, as I grew up. But there were many aspects of my personality that sort of lend its way towards other careers. So I, I was very extroverted. I loved to talk all the time. And so people would always tell me things like, you should go into marketing or you should go into law. So as a kid, I was sort of all over the place in terms of what I wanted to do, but I could never, ever scratch the feeling that science was really part of my path. And mm -hmm. I never could since I was 10 and I still can't. So even when I was an undergrad, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, sort of scratch that off. And, and so I think I would say there was a part of me, even when I was eight years old, that always knew that science had to be part of my life journey. What attracted you uh, in the field of mental health specifically? I think uh, the, the most pivotal moment that I could think of was in high school, I gave a presentation on mental health. And that was 
quite random actually it was a really hot topic at the time i thought that's pretty cool let me just do some research I actually did a lot of research uh, or learned a lot about the research from the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH, which I work, uh, this is where I work right now. And I was really, um, I gravitated towards all these new ways of thinking about mental health. And from there, I started reading a lot, um, getting deep into the literature in terms of some of the biological implications of mental health conditions, some of the social implications. And that's where my passion for that really started. Um, and one thing I would like to say about this is this really shows us the importance of science communication. You know, many um, individuals are drawn to science um, or a particular aspect of science uh, because they were exposed to it. For me, I could say that I was exposed to the physical sciences at a very young age, but I wasn't really exposed to mental health in my personal life. But it really is the importance of hearing it in the news and, and following up with what people are saying and it being talked about on social media that allows people to be drawn into these topics. And I think that is my story with mental health research. I, I love that. Um, were there any women role models throughout your your career? Maybe earlier in life. I mean, you've mentioned obviously your your dad who was a chemist, but um, I'm interested to know if there were any women in in science specifically that maybe inspired you along the way. I I had a really good friend growing up. Um, her name is. Um, Asmadi, and she was a family friend, and she was actually a therapist. And this was pretty new in my community for someone to be a therapist. Uh, and she did a lot of mental health research, and I she was my go-to. Funny story, my mental health presentation that I gave in high school, she was the guest speaker for that ah. presentation, and that was sort of a my first exposure of a woman in mental health that sort of helped me navigate thinking about, you know, where I wanted to be in this space and how I could contribute. So I would say her. Um, I do have to say, and this is a cliche answer, but I have to say it. I think my biggest inspiration um, and support is definitely my mom, uh, not particularly because she's in science or mental health, but because she always championed the things that I did. And when I started to talk about mental health, she you know, she became very open-minded about it and was um, really pushing me to pursue this as well. So that's always nice to have someone who isn't in science or the field uh, really pushing you towards doing something that they feel is meaningful. And I'm curious to know, because we often talk about women being underrepresented in, in STEM in general and science. Um, what was your experience like? You know, for you, it seemed pretty clear that you wanted to pursue, uh, you know, education and 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 classes in, in science and eventually mental health, but were there a lot of girls with the same interests or did you find yourself in classes with just boys? Um, and, and do you feel that it's it's changing that more women like you are becoming interested in, in science? Because science is so broad, there are differences in certain fields. Um, I studied uh, more life science biology in undergrad and even in high school. I would say that there was a, a quite a good representation of women in those fields um both in both women in terms of like all women but also quite um a good ethnic diversity in those fields the one thing that's really interesting to note um and we talked about this in the academic world as the leaky pipeline so mm -hmm. in when you're in elementary school you know obviously everybody has to take science classes because it's mandatory in high school it's the same thing 
an undergrad, the number trickles a little bit. And then as you sort of move on in the ladder, you start to really notice the pipeline is leading, that there are less and less women being represented. There are, there are less and less women of color being represented. So I'm at this space where I'm now starting to realize, okay, so this sort of relatively balanced diversity that I saw in undergrad and in high school is slowly starting to shift away from that and towards less women and less women of color mm. um, in these mm. positions. And how do you think we can change that? I mean, other than getting, you know, women like you in front of young girls and hopefully influence them and, you know, give them role models uh, that they can look up to and make them want to pursue a career in science. But how can we, you know, how can we kind of address that gender gap in, in the near to long term? I think it has to start really early on. So the, the pipeline problem uh, or the leaky pipeline is what one may call it. It's something that starts really early on. So I, I, I come from a place of privilege when I say that my dad was a scientist and I was exposed at a really young age. My dad immigrated here. It's it's not a very common story, and I and I appreciate that so much. A lot of my friends didn't have that uh, exposure at a young age. They didn't find science exciting. Nobody pushed them towards pursuing it, and so as a result, they sort of defaulted into um, careers or disciplines that are typically um, held by women, and and they didn't really have it when they were young to sort of aspire to be an astronaut or something. And that will always carry carry with this child, and and it will move through um, to their adulthood and um, and as they build their career. So if we were you know really gonna start balancing out the genders and also balancing out the ethnic diversity, we need to make sure that in schools all kids are shown how exciting the STEM fields are, and not just how exciting they are for anybody, but the type of contribution each individual can make. We know now through many different types of evidences that we need both men and women in leadership positions in STEM. And that is how we actually get a, a, a really, you know, research moves forward that way. Um, we also need people of various different underrepresented groups, different uh, individuals from BIPOC communities, so Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Those need to be represented in leadership positions. It's, it's that high diversity that needs to be exposed to all children so they know that I could be anybody and still go into science. Because I will be honest, when I was younger, as much as I gravitated towards science and it was part of my childhood home, it wasn't something I saw people who looked like me, you know, visible Muslims, actually pursue. And so there was this very interesting gap. There was like the ambition I had at home because I, it was limitless. And then things that I saw outside of my home, which seemed limited. So even though I come from, you know, in the science world, a very lucky place, I would say, I still felt that gap. And I noticed it when I was, you know, 10 years old. So I think the best way to... to bridge this gap is to start as young as possible and to expose children not just to science a science video but to mm -hmm. um but to the scientist and let them yes. know this is how scientists think these are who we are and this is what we can do it's so interesting you say that because i remember when i was uh, in high school and trying to figure out you know what i would do for for college 
um, I was really good in science and, and physical science specifically, but I had no idea what a career looked like, right? Other than, than medicine maybe and becoming a doctor, which wasn't appealing to me. I didn't know about all these other fields, right? And especially I didn't see any women specifically occupying these roles. So I had no idea what was even possible. I, I had the exact same experience, you know, kids who are uh, good in the traditional sciences in school, they're always thought, okay, go into medicine. It's just mm -hmm. like the only logical explanation. But it's interesting because medicine is not science. Um, and even, you know, me pursuing a PhD was a little bit out of the norm in the community um, that I grew up in when it comes to what someone does when they're good in science it just it's not really you do a phd in computational neuroscience it's that you become a neurosurgeon so right. um so even things like that it's that i grew up at a time where there were really specific careers people were supposed to have and if you mm -hmm. sort of met the checkbox list of things that that career needs being good in science or having uh, a particular personality you were sort of pushed towards that career in really uh, implicit ways by those in your community and per perhaps your home um so and and it's when you grow up like that it's a little bit hard to dream about all the things that you can do and if those dreams are not really pushing you and carrying with you carrying through you throughout your entire life it's difficult to have a creative career and feel like I can be whatever I want to be. Instead, you think, well, I'm going to do this because it just makes sense. Because I'm good at math, I'm going to be a doctor. Or I'm good at math, I'm going to be an engineer. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I had the same experiences as you. So I'm curious to know, let's talk about your work uh, specifically. And I'd love for you to uh, summarize. I mean, I was sent your entire bio and started reading to it. And I said, I'm just going to ask her to sum up what her work focuses on. Um, and I'm really interested in knowing how you got to that specific uh, field of research with your, with your PhD currently. Uh, so I am a third year PhD student and my dissertation is really focused on examining the relationship between how the brain is connected to itself and certain aspects of child development we find are important in mental health. And the broad umbrella for this term is called psychopathology. Psychopathology can be sort of um, separated into different aspects. So uh, for my personal research and my interests, I'm interested in uh, different sort of categories of behaviors. These behaviors are called externalizing or internalizing behavior. Mm -hmm. Externalizing behaviors are any behavior that is sort of external. So things like aggression, rule breaking, these would be considered externalizing behaviors. Internalizing behaviors are things that are internal. So anxiety or withdrawal. These aspects or these types of behaviors are really important in a child's development and they can vary between uh, children of you know if they have different mental health conditions or um, even across sort of a typically developing sample with no mental health conditions they're very variable a lot of research was showing um, when I was you know an undergrad and uh, just started grad school that there was this interesting relationship between elements of psychopathology and brain connectivity mm -hmm. And it was sort of this spark. So I'm I'm really motivated by an insatiable curiosity. And I thought, okay, so, you know, we know, or not we know, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that brain connectivity is linked to traits of psychopathology. A lot of the research suggests that this is, um, or a lot of the research is done 
across typically developing children. So children with no mental health condition that is known. I was interested in whether that relationship is also present in children with different neurodevelopmental disorders. So these are disorders such as autism spectrum disorder, attention hyperactivity, uh, uh, sorry, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and obsessive compulsive disorder. I was wondering whether that relationship we see in typically developing children can be mapped into children with neurodevelopmental disorders. And that is sort of how this project and my dissertation uh, played out. This season of The Bren is Female is made possible with the support of TD Bank Group Women Entrepreneurs. Confidently building your business takes sound advice plus guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. What's great about TD Services for Women in Business is their collaboration-based approach. They work with both internal and external partners who can provide education, financing, mentorship, and community support. TD employees are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. They can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, and mentorship, and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way so we can share experiences and learn from each other. Tell me a bit about how you interact with CAMH today specifically, and um, maybe also tell us about you know the practical applications of the research you're working on. So CAMH, funny story, I wanted to work on CAMH since I was in grade 12, uh, grade 11, because that's when I did my mental health presentation. And I it all connects to that. <laughs> I'm back where I wanted to be. Well, not back. I guess I, I, I came where I wanted to be. And that's been um, an honor to work um, at CAMH, knowing that they're really the leaders of this type of research. Mm-hmm. So um, I was motivated to go to CAMH because I knew that it was a really large research center and they were doing a lot of the cutting edge research um, in mental health and particularly the biological aspects of mental health. At the end of the day, I really enjoy neuroscience. Like I am really motivated in trying to understand the brain and that had to be part of my science journey. Um, and there was there were really these pioneers or these leaders in the field of how do we understand mental health at the brain level? And what does that mean for potential treatments? What is one thing, and I think we've come a long way with mental health and certainly um, even the past year, right? Uh, mental health has become a hot topic, unfortunately, for, uh, for sad reasons because everybody has been experiencing kind of heightened levels of anxiety or stress as a result of the COVID pandemic and, and connected challenges. Uh, but at least we're having more conversations about mental health and it's not, it's not such a taboo concept anymore. Um, but what is one thing that maybe through your research is something you wish people understood or knew about mental health or maybe just something about the concept of mental health in general that we tend to get wrong? Um, a really great question. A little anecdote was I grew up at a time where uh, people still were not convinced that mental health is real. And right. I'm, I'm very young. I'm, I'm 24 years old. So when I was in high school, people people still didn't believe that it was real. And, and I remember in my presentation that I keep talking about, this was a new concept. People were like, I've never heard about that before. Mm-hmm. So that sort of provides context in terms of, you know, it's been about 10 years maybe that, that you know, the, the idea of mental health in the public has really been changed. And I think that's amazing. One thing I think um, I would like people to know is that there's many paths for people to um, 
for people, there's many paths that lead people towards suffering or, or dealing with a mental health disorder. And those paths can be very different. For some, it's an environmental situation that happened in their life. You know, there was a traumatic thing that happened and it really influenced their perspective and perhaps that led to downstream uh, mental health challenges and conditions. For others, it's completely biological and genetic. And so I think that we need to have nuance as part of the conversation. We can't only see it as an environmental thing. It only happens to people who, you know, um, uh, face this particular thing in their life, or it only happens when there's a genetic uh, link to the brain that may be associated with mental health conditions. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of stories that people can share where to them, totally genetic and biological. To others, it wasn't um, uh, sort of, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't rooted in the genetics because of course everything interacts with one another. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's something that I wish people knew and I wish people would talk about um, the nuance and the fact that there's many paths to the same, uh, there's many paths to even the same disorder or the same condition. And these conditions are very, uh, we call heterogeneous, which means that just because one person has autism spectrum disorder doesn't mean that they're going to look the exact same as other people with autism spectrum disorder. It doesn't mean that their biology is the same. Research suggests that there's a lot of differences in how their brain um, functions, and it doesn't mean that their behaviors are the same. Mm-hmm. So um, as when we dif- when we allow that nuance and when we allow the conversation to be more about these individuals are dealing with these conditions. Not all of them are bad. Not all of them are wrong at all. Some of them are more challenging than others. How do we make it so that we're focusing on the actual individual? The treatments work for a single individual based on their history, or the conversation is about what are all the stories that led individuals um, to to, um, deal with these particular conditions? I think that is the next major step for the mental health uh, public conversation. That's so interesting. And it makes me think of kind of traditional Western medicine as well, right? Where there's always just one, it's one size fits all, and there's one specific drug to, you know, address one specific symptom or illness, but often it's, you know, we're all unique and we all have a unique experience and set of, you know, factors that affect our, our health so that that makes a lot of sense that it applies to mental health as well and it's so interesting you say that um in so many of my uh, award applications i always talk about the fact that previously that was the the modern um the modern sort of ethos of western medicine is that one size fits all we have this drug it works and then we find that okay actually it doesn't really work for a lot of people but we're not really sure why and right. then so that that was sort of what led to this okay Themes are actually not really working. What is the next step? And the next Mm -hmm. step is that we treat each individual as an individual and we stop sort of lumping them up in groups and say, okay, everybody here has an anxiety disorder. This works. It's more of what's your story? You know, Mm -hmm. is it, you know, what's your family history? How do we work with that information to make sure that you are getting the best treatment for you, not for me or not for, you know, person X that came just before you? Right, right. Yeah, that's I think that's so important. Um, I brought up, you know, what the past year has 
had in terms of impact on our collective mental health. And unfortunately, women find themselves suffering at higher rates, whether it's job losses in you know sectors where uh, women are, tend to be more represented, including uh, uh, hospitality, uh, entertainment, and so on. Um, and we've, you know, women often struggle with uh, uh, take responsibilities around the home and children. Uh, and anyway, I could go on. And we we often talk about how uh, we're going through a she session. In in fact, uh, because women are so heavily uh, uh, burdened by what's happening. So, how do you think we can help support women, generally speaking? with this extra pressure on mental health and what is that going to look like as we get out of this pandemic and in in the post covid world that we hope is just around the corner what kind of support do you think is going to be needed for women's mental health um as a researcher i think that research is really the first place we need to start. It's, you know, what happened in COVID exacerbated problems that already existed. It did not introduce any new problem. So there was always a problem of women having a, a difficulty balancing, you know, a successful career with a family life because there were not the support systems there and available for them. In COVID, the minimal support systems were taken away. And so we see this is that exacerbation of this problem. And the problem, uh, the root of the problem is that we don't really know what, as a society, we don't really know what women actually need because there's not enough research there. And, you know, women are not a monolith. Women of different cultures may need different, uh, different resources. And without the research, it's very difficult to implement policy changes. It's, it's difficult to influence and sort of change the minds of individuals to make sure that we're pushing for resources. It's important that those who are pushing for the new resources that women need are the women who need the resources and not others. And the way to do that at a mass level is to make sure that women are at the forefront of being the researchers asking these questions, but also being those who are being researched and being able to share what they need. And that way we can gather large amounts of data of what women want, what women felt like during the pandemic and work from there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, going back to our young women for a second who may be interested and we hope are interested in larger numbers and careers in STEM, what would be your advice to <clears throat> someone who is contemplating a career in the field? Um, I sort of put together three pieces of advice that I normally give. Um, and I've been giving this advice for a while and I still, I still stand with it, which I think is a, a good sign. Um, the first thing is find women mentors in science. Um, that is the most important thing. I was taught this at a young age, but I didn't really, um, it didn't really internalize to me until I got much older. And that is mentors are really the key to success. And it's really important that we have mentors that we feel like resonate with us in some way. So if you're a woman, it's important to have female mentors or woman mentors um, that can sort of help you pave your way into, you know, mental health, academia, science and research, particularly because it's a hard path and it's only made a little bit easier with these mentors. Um, I would say that the best way to have mentors or to get mentors it's just to ask. I have literally emailed people and said, hey, I really like your work. Do you want to be my mentor? And I, to this day, I have not had anybody say no. 
they normally say, yeah, that's great. Let's, you know, hop on a Zoom call if we're in a pandemic, which you are in right now. Ask people to be your mentors. And it's a really nice strategy for building long-term relationships in life as well. And to this point, I would also stress that it's important to have multiple mentors. Each individual can only provide their perspective on something. And so you don't want your perspective to always be directly linked with someone else's. It's better to have enriched perspectives. And I love to have multiple mentors from various different backgrounds, different genders, etc., that can have all influenced how I see my career path in science. And that has been really helpful. My second uh, piece of advice is do your best to work with people that encourage you to be the scientist or the person that you want to be. There's a lot of people that, you know, are sort of going to form, mold you into what they think is important or what they Mm -hmm. think will help you be successful. And oftentimes you will find that that is not consistent with what you would actually want for yourself. Particularly in science, there is in some way you know, the way that a scientist looks and the way that a scientist dresses and how we always have to talk in a certain way. And and this is, you know, sort of really pushed on individuals in science for sure. And sometimes those values are not going to match your values. Sometimes that style is not going to match your style. So just always be around people that are going to champion you to be the type of scientist that you want to be, not the scientist that somebody else wants you to be. Um, and my, my last thing and this has been hard for me to learn, but but I did have to learn it, is that we need to treat science like a marathon, not a sprint. And this isn't specific to science, but all careers. You know, every career has really exciting highs. You know, like in science, it's you publish your paper, you give a really cool talk, and, and those are invigorating, absolutely invigorating. They're also far and few in between. And so it's important for us to treat science like a marathon. It's Every step, you're getting a little bit closer to your ultimate goal, which is making a really exciting discovery or contributing to mental health research in a really big way. Um, Those come later. And it's important that we're always remembering that it's one step at a time, one foot in front of the other. You know, it may be long, hard months, but the reward is always there. Um, And we never know when it will be. But when we feel it, we really feel it. Um, but not to be discouraged when it doesn't happen in a month because it may happen in a couple of years. Uh, yes, and that's excellent advice. I think that can be applied for, for any industry. And I love what you said about not worrying about what a scientist is supposed to sound like or look like because we, we'd probably picture a man too, right? <laughs> Definitely. Um, and and people are, are still, they hold on, especially children, they hold on to a lot of these stereotypical ways that a scientist look, looks like which ultimately looks a lot like Albert Einstein. <laughs> that is sort of that's our, true. that's our archetype of what a scientist is. And so as soon as yeah. you um, move past that, um, as I obviously have, uh, because I am the farthest thing from Albert Einstein in, in all ways, um, you know, people sort of start confused. Like, oh, really? Like you're a scientist? Like, I never thought you would be a scientist. That's not what they look like. Um, and, and we have to push past that and, and be around people who allow us to express ourselves in the way that we would like to. So my last question for you, which is my favorite question to ask guests on the show, and given that we are during Women's Month, uh, this is very timely. What is one thing you wish women would do more of, apart from pursuing a career in science, obviously? I, of course, know you're going to ask this question, but I'll sort of pretend to be thinking. Um, I would say that I I hope that women will be at the forefront of reshaping the narrative 
of the fact that women have multiple identities and all of those identities are really important for us to move the needle and make sure that women are equally represented. So for me, I am a woman, yes, but that's only one small aspect of my identity. I am a visibly Muslim woman. My parents immigrated here. Um, you know, I speak English and Arabic. Um, and so all these aspects of you know my identity is important and it's just as important as me being a woman. And so we shouldn't put all women as a monolith. You know, it shouldn't be that what do the women want but it's more of you know what do you want what what will help you how do we how do we make it so that each individual person is really able to be themselves and 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 share their idiosyncratic needs and personalities and i and i would really like women to be at the forefront of reshaping the narrative of the fact that women are multidimensional and we need to make sure that that is always at the forefront of the discussion anytime we discuss women I love that answer. That was fantastic. And I like how it connects to your research as well and the premise for your research where it's never one size fits all, right? We have to take uh, multiple angles into account. I think if I could sum up uh, basically almost everything that I said, it really is that everybody is just, there's a huge amount of individual variability. Everybody is their own person. Everybody has a story. Everybody has slightly different biology. You know, there's there's a new field of individual variability in the brain, which is, you know, what are the little things in the brain that make everybody's brain a little bit different from anyone else's? And this this is really, I think, the new place where our discussion needs to be with all aspects of improving life for, for humans in general. Mm. That's really inspiring. I love that answer. Well, thank you so much. It was great getting to know you and happy Women's Month. And thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you so much, Eva. I had a pleasure and blast talking to you. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. And if you did, as always, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review wherever that is possible. Thank you to TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs, for the support of The Brand is Female. You got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo.